Section three of Lords of the Housetops Thirteen Cattails edited by Carl Van Becten A Psychical Invasion by Algernon Blackwood Part one This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. A Psychical Invasion by Algernon Blackwood Part one and what is it makes you think I could be of use in this particular case? asked Dr. John Silence, looking across somewhat skeptically at the Swedish lady in the chair facing him. Your sympathetic heart and your knowledge of occultism. Oh, please, that dreadful word, he interrupted, holding up a finger with a gesture of impatience. Well, then, she laughed, your wonderful clairvoyant gift and your trained psychic knowledge of the processes by which a personality may be disintegrated and destroyed. These strange studies you have been experimenting with all these years. "'If it's only a case of multiple personality, I must really cry off,' interrupted the doctor again hastily, a bored expression in his eyes. "'It's not that. Now, please be serious, for I want your help,' she said. "'And if I choose my words poorly, you must be patient with my ignorance. The case I know will interest you, and no one else could deal with it so well. In fact, no ordinary professional man could deal with it at all, for I know of no treatment or medicine that can restore a lost sense of humor.' "'You begin to interest me with your case,' he replied, and made himself comfortable to listen. Mrs. Sybertson drew a sigh of contentment as she watched him go to the tube and heard him tell the servant he was not to be disturbed. "'I believe you have read my thoughts already,' she said. "'Your intuitive knowledge of what goes on in other people's minds is positively uncanny.' Her friend shook his head and smiled as he drew his chair up to a convenient position and prepared to listen attentively to what she had to say. He closed his eyes as he always did when he wished to absorb the real meaning of a recital that might be inadequately expressed, for by this method he found it easier to set himself in tune with the living thoughts that lay behind the broken words. By his friends, John Silence was regarded as an eccentric, because he was rich by accident and by choice a doctor. That a man of independent means should devote his time to doctoring, chiefly doctoring folk who could not pay, passed their comprehension entirely. The native nobility of a soul, whose first desire was to help those who could not help themselves, puzzled them. After that it irritated them, and greatly to his own satisfaction they left him to his own devices. Dr. Silence was a freelance, though among doctors, having neither consulting room, bookkeeper, nor professional manner. He took no fees, being at heart a genuine philanthropist, yet at the same time did no harm to his fellow practitioners, because he only accepted unremunerative cases and cases that interested him for some very special reason. He argued that the rich could pay, and the very poor could avail themselves of organized charity, but that a very large class of ill-paid, self-respecting workers, often followers of the arts, could not afford the price of a week's comforts, merely to be told to travel. And it was these he desired to help, cases often requiring special and patient study, things no doctor can give for a guinea, and that no one would dream of expecting him to give. But there was another side to his personality and practice, and one with which we are now more directly concerned. For the cases that especially appealed to him were of no ordinary kind, but rather of that intangible, elusive, and difficult nature best described as psychical afflictions. And though he would have been the last person himself to approve of the title, it was beyond question that he was known more or less generally as the psychic doctor. In order to grapple with cases of this peculiar kind, he had submitted himself to a long and severe training at once physical, mental, and spiritual. What precisely this training had been, or where undergone, no one seemed to know, for he never spoke of it, as, indeed, he betrayed no single other characteristic of the charlatan, but the fact that it had involved a total disappearance from the world for five years, 
and that after he returned and began a singular practice no one ever dreamed of applying to him the so easily acquired epithet of quack spoke much for the seriousness of his strange quest and also for the genuineness of his attainments for the modern psychical researcher he felt the calm tolerance of the man who knows there was a trace of pity in his voice contempt he never showed when he spoke of their methods this classification of results is uninspired work at best he said once to me when i had been his confidential assistant for some years it leads nowhere and after a hundred years will lead nowhere it is playing with the wrong end of a rather dangerous toy far better it would be to examine the causes and then the results would so easily slip into place and explain themselves for the sources are accessible and open to all who have the courage to lead the life that alone makes practical investigation safe and possible and towards the question of clairvoyance too his attitude was significantly sane for he knew how extremely rare the genuine power was and that what is commonly called clairvoyance is nothing more than a keen power of visualizing it connotes a slightly increased sensibility nothing more he would say the true clairvoyant deplores his power recognizing that it adds a new horror to his life and is in the nature of an affliction and you will find this always to be the real test thus it was that john silence the singularly developed doctor was able to select his cases with a clear knowledge of the difference between mere hysterical delusion and the kind of psychical affliction that claimed his special powers it was never necessary for him to resort to the cheap mysteries of divination for as i have heard him observe after the solution of some peculiarly intricate problem systems of divination from geomancy down to reading by tea-leaves are merely so many methods of obscuring the outer vision in order that the inner vision may become open once the method is mastered no system is necessary at all and the words were significant of the methods of this remarkable man the keynote of whose power lay perhaps more than anything else in the knowledge first that thought can act at a distance and secondly that thought is dynamic and can accomplish material results learn how to think he would have expressed it and you have learned to tap power at its source to look at he was now past forty he was sparingly built with speaking brown eyes in which shone the light of knowledge and self-confidence while at the same time they made one think of that wondrous gentleness seen most often in the eyes of animals a close beard concealed the mouth without disguising the grim determination of lips and jaw and the face somehow conveyed an expression of transparency almost of light so delicately were the features refined anyway on the fine forehead was that indefinable touch of peace that comes from identifying the mind with what is permanent in the soul and letting the impermanent slip by without power to wound or distress while from his manner so gentle quiet sympathetic few could have guessed the strength of purpose that burned within like a great flame i think i should describe it as a psychical case continued the swedish lady obviously trying to explain herself very intelligently and just the kind you like i mean a case where the cause is hidden deep down in some spiritual distress and but the symptoms first please my dear svenska he interrupted with a strangely compelling seriousness of manner and your deductions afterwards she turned round sharply on the edge of her chair and looked him in the face lowering her voice to prevent her emotion betraying itself too obviously in my opinion there's only one symptom she half whispered as though telling something disagreeable fear simply fear physical fear i think not though how can i say i think it's a horror in the psychical region it's no ordinary delusion this man is quite sane but he lives in mortal terror of something i don't know what you mean by his psychical region said the doctor with a smile though i suppose you wish me to understand that his spiritual and not his mental processes are affected anyhow try and tell me briefly and pointedly what you know about the man his symptoms his need for help 
my peculiar help, that is, in all that seems vital in the case, I promise to listen devotedly. I am trying, she continued earnestly, but must do so in my own words, and trust to your intelligence to disentangle as I go along. He is a young author, and lives in a tiny house off Putney Heath somewhere. He writes humorous stories, quite a genre of his own. Pender, you might have heard the name, Felix Pender? Oh, the man has a great gift, and married on the strength of it. His future seemed assured. I say had, for quite suddenly his talent utterly failed him. Worse, it became transformed into its opposite. He can no longer write a line in the old way that was bringing him success. Dr. Silence opened his eyes for a second and looked at her. He still writes, then. The force is not gone. He asked briefly, and then closed his eyes again to listen. He works like a fury, she went on, but produces nothing. She hesitated a moment. Nothing that he can use or sell. His earnings have practically ceased, and makes a precarious living by book-reviewing and odd jobs. Very odd, some of them. Yet I am certain his talent has not really deserted him finally, but is merely— Again Mrs. Sivertson hesitated for the appropriate word. In abeyance, he suggested, without opening his eyes. Obliterated, she went on, after a moment to weigh the word, merely obliterated by something else. By some one else? I wish I knew. All I can say is that he's haunted, and temporarily his sense of humor is shrouded, gone, replaced by something dreadful, that writes other things. Unless something competent is done, he will simply starve to death. Yet he is afraid to go to a doctor for fear of being pronounced insane. And anyhow, a man can hardly ask a doctor to take a guinea to restore a vanished sense of humor, can he? Has he tried anyone at all? No doctors yet. He tried some clergymen and religious people. But they know so little and have so little intelligent sympathy. And most of them are so busy balancing on their own little pedestals. John Silence stopped her tirade with a gesture. "'And how is it that you know so much about him?' he asked gently. "'I know Mrs. Pender well. I knew her before she married him.' "'And is she a cause, perhaps?' "'Not in the least. She is devoted. A woman very well educated, though without being really intelligent, and with so little sense of humour herself that she always laughs at the wrong places. But she has nothing to do with the cause of his distress, and, indeed, has chiefly guessed it from observing him rather than from what little he has told her. And he, you know, is a really lovable fellow, hard-working, patient, altogether worth saving. Dr. Silence opened his eyes and went over to ring for tea. He did not know very much more about the case of the humorist than when he first sat down to listen, but he realized that no amount of words from his Swedish friend would help to reveal the real facts. A personal interview with the author himself could alone do that. All humorists are worth saving, he said with a smile, as she poured out tea. We can't afford to lose a single one in these strenuous days. I will go and see your friend at the first opportunity. She thanked him elaborately, effusively, with many words, and he, with much difficulty, kept the conversation thenceforward strictly to the teapot. And as a result of this conversation, and a little more he had gathered by means best known to himself and his secretary, he was whizzing in his motor-car one afternoon, a few days later up the Putney Hill, to have his first interview with Felix Pender, the humorous writer who was the victim of some mysterious malady in his psychical region, that had obliterated his sense of the comic and threatened to wreck his life and destroy his talent and his desire to help was probably of equal strength with his desire to know and to investigate. The motor stopped with a deep purring sound, as though a great black panther lay concealed within its hood, and the doctor, the psychic doctor, as he was sometimes called, stepped out through the gathering fog and walked across the tiny garden that held a blackened fir tree and a stunted laurel shrubbery. The house was very small, and it was some time before anyone answered the bell. Then suddenly... A light appeared in the hall, and he saw a pretty little woman standing on the top step begging him to come in. She was dressed in grey, 
and the gaslight fell on a mass of deliberately brushed light hair. Stuffed dusty birds and a shabby array of African spears hung on the wall behind her. A hat-rack with a bronze plate full of very large cards led his eyes swiftly to a dark staircase beyond. Mrs. Pender had round eyes like a child's, and she greeted him with an effusiveness that barely concealed her emotion, yet strove to appear naturally cordial. Evidently she had been looking out for his arrival, and had outrun the servant-girl. She was a little breathless. "'I hope you have not been kept waiting. I think it's most good of you to come,' she began, and then stopped sharply when she saw his face in the gaslight. There was something in Dr. Silent's look that did not encourage mere talk. He was in earnest now, if ever man was. "'Good evening, Mrs. Pender,' he said with a quiet smile that won confidence, yet deprecated unnecessary words. "'The fog delayed me a little. I'm glad to see you.' They went into a dingy sitting-room at the back of the house, neatly furnished but depressing. Books stood in a row upon the mantelpiece. The fire had evidently just been lit. It smoked in great puffs into the room. "'Mrs. Sivertson said she thought you might be able to come,' ventured the little woman again, looking up engagingly into his face and betraying anxiety and eagerness in every gesture. "'But I hardly dared to believe it. I think it is really too good of you. My husband's case is so peculiar that—well, you know, I'm quite sure any ordinary doctor would say at once the asylum.' "'Isn't he in, then?' asked Dr. Silence gently. "'In the asylum?' she gasped. "'Oh, dear, no, not yet.' "'In the house I meant,' he laughed. She gave a great sigh. "'He'll be back any minute now,' she replied, obviously relieved to see him laugh. "'But the fact is, we didn't expect you so early. I mean, my husband hardly thought you would come at all.' "'I'm always delighted to come when I am really wanted and can be of help,' he said quickly. "'And perhaps it's all for the best that your husband's out, for now that we are alone you can tell me something about his difficulties. So far, you know, I have heard very little.' Her voice trembled as she thanked him, and when he came and took a chair close beside her she actually had difficulty in finding words with which to begin.' "'In the first place,' she began timidly, and then continuing with a nervous, incoherent rush of words, "'he will be simply delighted that you really come, because he said you were the only person he would consent to see at all, the only doctor, I mean. But, of course, he doesn't know how frightened I am, or how much I have noticed. He pretends with me that it's all just a nervous breakdown, and I'm sure he doesn't realize all the odd things I've noticed him doing. But the main thing, I suppose—' "'Yes, the main thing, Mrs. Pender,' he said encouragingly, noticing her hesitation. "'Is that he thinks we are not alone in the house. That's the chief thing.' "'Tell me more facts, just facts.' "'It began last summer when I came back from Ireland. He had been here alone for six weeks, and I thought him looking tired and queer, ragged and scattered about the face, if you know what I mean, and his manner worn out. He said he had been writing hard, but his inspiration had somehow failed him, and he was dissatisfied with his work. His sense of humour was leaving him, or changing into something else, he said. There was something in the house, he declared, that— she emphasized the words, prevented his feeling funny. "'Something in the house that prevented his feeling funny,' repeated the doctor. "'Ah, now we're getting to the heart of it.' "'Yes,' she resumed vaguely, "'that's what he kept saying. "'And what was it he did that you thought strange?' he asked sympathetically. "'Be brief, or he may be here before you finish.' "'Very small things, but significant, it seemed to me. "'He changed his workroom from the library, as we call it, to the sitting-room.' He said all his characters became wrong and terrible in the library. They altered so that he felt like writing tragedies, vile, debased tragedies, the tragedies of broken souls. But now he says the same of the smoking-room, and he's gone back to the library. Ah! You see, there's so little I can tell you, she went on, with increasing speed and countless gestures. I mean, it's only very small things he does and says that are queer. What frightens me is that he assumes there is someone else in the house all the time, someone I never see. 
He doesn't actually say so, but on the stairs I've seen him standing aside to let someone pass. And I've seen him open a door to let someone in or out. And often in our bedroom he puts chairs about as though for someone else to sit in. Oh, oh, yes, and once or twice, she cried. Once or twice? She paused and looked about her with a startled air. Yes? Once or twice, she resumed hardly, as though she heard a sound that alarmed her. I've heard him running, coming in and out of the rooms breathless, as if someone were after him. The door opened while she was still speaking, cutting her words off in the middle, and a man came into the room. He was dark and clean-shaven, sallow, rather, with the eyes of imagination, and dark hair growing scantily about the temples. He was dressed in a shabby tweed suit, and wore an untidy flannel collar at the neck. The dominant expression of his face was startled, hunted, an expression that might any moment leap into the dreadful stare of terror, and announce a total loss of self-control. The moment he saw his visitor, a smile spread over his worn features, and he advanced to shake hands. "'I hoped you would come. Mrs. Sybenson said you might be able to find time,' he said simply. His voice was thin and reedy. "'I am very glad to see you, Dr. Silence. It is doctor, is it not?' "'Well, I am entitled to the description,' laughed the other. "'But I really get it, you know. I do not practice as a regular thing. That is, I only take cases that specially interest me, or—' He did not finish the sentence, for the men exchanged a glance of sympathy that rendered it unnecessary. "'I have heard of your great kindness.' "'It's my hobby,' said the other quickly, "'and my privilege.' "'I trust you will still think so when you have heard what I have to tell you,' continued the author a little wearily. He led the way across the hall into the little smoking-room, where they could talk freely and undisturbed. In the smoking-room the door shut and privacy about them. Pender's attitude changed somewhat, and his manner became very grave. The doctor sat opposite, where he could watch his face. Already he saw it looked more haggard. Evidently it cost him much to refer to his trouble at all. "'What I have is this, in my belief, a profound spiritual affliction,' he began quite bluntly, looking straight into the other's eyes. "'I saw that at once,' Dr. Silence said. "'Yes, you saw that, of course. My atmosphere must convey that much to anyone with psychic perceptions. Besides which, I feel sure, from all I have heard, that you are really a soul doctor, are you not?' more than any healer merely of the body. "'You think of me too highly,' returned the other, "'though I prefer cases, as you know, in which the spirit is disturbed first, the body afterwards. "'I understand, yes, well, I have experienced a curious disturbance in—' "'Not in my physical region, primarily. "'I mean, my nerves are all right, and my body is all right. "'I have no delusions, exactly, but my spirit is tortured by a calamitous fear "'which first came upon me in a strange manner.' John Silence leaned forward a moment and took the speaker's hand and held it in his own for a few brief seconds, closing his eyes as he did so. He was not feeling his pulse or doing any of the things that doctors ordinarily do. He was merely absorbing into himself the main note of the man's mental condition, so as to get completely his own point of view, and thus be able to treat his case with true sympathy. A very close observer might perhaps have noticed that a slight tremor ran through his frame after he had held the hand for a few seconds. "'Tell me quite frankly, Mr. Pender,' he said soothingly, releasing the hand, and with deep attention in his manner, "'tell me all the steps that led to the beginning of this invasion. I mean, tell me what the particular drug was, and why you took it, and how it affected you.' "'Then you knew it began with a drug?' cried the author, with undisguised astonishment. "'I only knew from what I observe in you, and its effect upon myself. You are in a surprising psychical condition.' Certain portions of your atmosphere are vibrating at a far greater rate than others. This is the effect of a drug, but of no ordinary drug. Allow me to finish, please. 
if the higher rate of vibration spreads all over you will become of course permanently cognizant of a much larger world than the one you know normally if on the other hand the rapid portion sinks back to the usual rate you will lose these occasional increased perceptions you now have you amaze me exclaimed the author for your words exactly describe what i have been feeling i mention this only in passing and to give you confidence before you approach the count of your real affliction continued the doctor all perception as you know is the result of vibrations and clairvoyance simply means becoming sensitive to an increased scale of vibrations the awakening of your inner senses we hear so much about means no more than that your partial clairvoyance is easily explained the only thing that puzzles me is how you manage to procure the drug for it is not easy to get in pure form and no adulterated tincture could have given you the terrific impetus i see you have acquired but please proceed now and tell me your story in your own way this cannabis indica the author went on came into my possession last autumn while my wife was away i need not explain how i got it for that's of no importance but it was the genuine fluid extract and i could not resist the temptation to make an experiment one of its effects as you know is to induce torrential laughter yes sometimes i am a writer of humorous tales and i wished to increase my sense of laughter to see the ludicrous from an abnormal point of view i wished to study it a bit if possible and tell me i took an experimental dose i starved for six hours to hasten the effect locked myself into this room and gave orders not to be disturbed then i swallowed the stuff and waited and the effect i waited one hour two three four five hours nothing happened no laughter came but only a great weariness instead nothing in the room or in my thoughts came within a hundred miles of a humorous aspect always a most uncertain drug interrupted the doctor we make a very small use of it on that account at two o'clock in the morning i felt so hungry and tired that i decided to give up the experiment and wait no longer i drank some milk and went upstairs to bed i felt flat and disappointed i fell asleep at once and must have slept for about an hour when i awoke suddenly with a great noise in my ears it was the noise of my own laughter i was simply shaking with merriment at first i was bewildered and thought i had been laughing in dreams but a moment later I remembered the drug, and was delighted to think that, after all, I had got an effect. It had been working all along, only I had miscalculated the time. The only unpleasant thing, then, was an odd feeling that I had not waked naturally, but had been wakened by someone else, deliberately. This came to me as a certainty in the middle of my noisy laughter, and distressed me. "'Any impression who it could have been?' asked the doctor, now listening with close attention to every word, very much on the alert. Pender hesitated and tried to smile. He brushed his hair from his forehead with a nervous gesture. "'You must tell me all your impressions, even your fancies. They are quite as important as your certainties.' I had a vague idea that it was someone connected with my forgotten dream, someone who had been at me in my sleep, someone of great strength and great ability or great force, quite an unusual personality, and I was certain, too, a woman. "'A good woman?' asked John Silence quietly. Pender started a little at the question, and his sallow face flushed. It seemed to surprise him. But he shook his head quickly with an indefinable look of horror. "'Evil,' he answered briefly, "'appallingly evil, and yet mingled with the sheer wickedness of it was also a certain perverseness, the perversity of the unbalanced mind.' He hesitated a moment and looked up sharply at his interlocutor. A shade of suspicion showed itself in his eyes." no laughed the doctor you need not fear that i am merely humoring you or think you mad far from it your story interests me exceedingly and you furnished me unconsciously with a number of clues as you tell it you see i possess some knowledge of my own as to these psychic byways 
"'I was shaking with such violent laughter,' continued the narrator, reassured in a moment, "'though with no clear idea what was amusing me, "'that I had the greatest difficulty in getting up for the matches, "'and was afraid I should frighten the servants overhead with my explosions. "'When the gas was lit I found the room empty, of course, "'and the door locked as usual. "'Then I half-dressed and went out onto the landing, "'my hilarity better under control, and proceeded to go downstairs.' I wished to record my sensations. I stuffed a handkerchief into my mouth so as not to scream aloud and communicate my hysterics to the entire household. And the presence of this, this... It was a hanging about me all the time, said Pender, but for the moment it seemed to have withdrawn. Probably, too, my laughter killed all other emotions. And how long did you take getting downstairs? I was just coming to that. I see you know all my symptoms in advance, as it were. For, of course, I thought I should never get to the bottom. Each step seemed to take five minutes, and crossing the narrow hall at the foot of the stairs, well, I could have sworn it was half an hour's journey, had not my watch certified that it was only a few seconds. Yet I walked fast and tried to push on. It was no good. I walked, apparently, without advancing, and at that rate it would have taken me a week to get down Putney Hill. An experimental dose radically alters the scale of time and space sometimes. But when at last I got into my study and lit the gas, the change came horridly, and sudden as a flash of lightning. It was like a douche of icy water, and in the middle of this storm of laughter. Yes, what? asked the doctor, leaning forward and peering into his eyes. I was overwhelmed with terror, said Pender, lowering his reedy voice at the mere recollection of it. He paused a moment and mopped his forehead. The scared, hunted look in his eyes now dominated the whole face. Yet all the time the corners of his mouth hinted of possible laughter, as though the recollection of that merriment still amused him. The combination of fear and laughter in his face was very curious, and lent great conviction to his story. It also lent a bizarre expression of horror to his gestures. "'Terror, was it?' repeated the doctor soothingly. "'Yes, terror, for though the thing that woke me seemed to have gone, the memory of it still frightened me, and I collapsed into a chair. Then I locked the door and tried to reason with myself. But the drug made my movement so prolonged that it took me five minutes to reach the door, and another five to get back to the chair again.' The laughter, too, kept bubbling up inside me, great wholesome laughter that shook me like gusts of wind, so that even my terror almost made me laugh. Oh, but I may tell you, Dr. Silence, it was altogether vile, that mixture of fear and laughter, altogether vile. Then all at once the things in the room again presented their funny side to me and set me off laughing more furiously than ever. The bookcase was ludicrous, the armchair a perfect clown. The way the clock looked at me on the mantelpiece, too comic for words. The arrangement of papers and inkstand on the desk tickled me till I roared and shook and held my sides and the tears streamed on my cheeks. And that footstool! Oh, that absurd footstool! He lay back in his chair laughing to himself and holding up his hands at the thought of it. And at the sight of him, Dr. Silence laughed too. Go on, please, he said. I quite understand. I know something myself of the hashish laughter. The author pulled himself together and resumed, his face growing quickly grave again. So you see... Side by side with this extravagant, apparently causeless merriment, there was also an extravagant, apparently causeless terror. The drug produced the laughter, I knew, but what brought in the terror I could not imagine. Everywhere behind the fun lay the fear. It was terror masked by cap and bells, and I became the playground for two opposing emotions, armed and fighting to the death. Gradually, then, the impression grew in me that this fear was caused by the invasion. So you called it just now of the person who wakened me. She was utterly evil, inimical to my soul, or at least to all in me that wished for good. There I stood, sweating and trembling, 
laughing at everything in the room, yet all the while, with this white terror mastering my heart, this creature was putting, putting her... He hesitated again, using his handkerchief freely. Putting what? Putting ideas into my mind, he went on, glancing nervously about the room, actually tapping my thought-stream so as to switch off the usual current and inject her own. How mad that sounds! I know it. But it's true. It's the only way I can express it. Moreover, while the operation terrified me, the skill with which it was accomplished filled me afresh with laughter at the clumsiness of men by comparison. Our ignorant, bungling methods of teaching the minds of others, of inculcating ideas, and so on, overwhelmed me with laughter when I understood the superior and diabolical method. Yet my laughter seemed hollow and ghastly, and ideas of evil and tragedy trod close upon the heels of the comic. Oh, doctor, I tell you again, it was unnerving. John Silence sat with his head thrust forward to catch every word of the story, which the other continued to pour out in nervous, jerky sentences and lowered voice. "'You saw nothing, no one, all this time?' he asked. "'Not with my eyes. There was no visual hallucination. But in my mind there began to grow the vivid picture of a woman, large, dark-skinned, with white teeth and masculine features, and one eye, the left, so drooping as to appear almost closed. Oh, such a face!' "'A face you would recognize again?' Pender laughed dreadfully. "'I wish I could forget it,' he whispered. "'I only wish I could forget it.' Then he sat forward in his chair suddenly and grasped the doctor's hand with an emotional gesture. "'I must tell you how grateful I am for your patience and sympathy,' he cried with a tremor in his voice, "'and that you do not think me mad. I have told no one else a quarter of all this. In the mere freedom of speech, the relief of sharing my affliction with another has helped me already more than I can possibly say.' Dr. Silence pressed his hand and looked steadily into the frightened eyes. His voice was very gentle when he replied, "'Your case, you know, is very singular. "'But of absorbing interest to me,' he said, "'for it threatens not your physical existence, "'but the temple of your psychical existence, the inner life. "'Your mind would not be permanently affected here and now in this world, "'but in the existence after the body is left behind, "'you might wake up with your spirit so twisted, so distorted, so befouled, that you would be spiritually insane, a far more radical condition than being merely insane here. There came a hush over the room, and between the two men sitting there facing one another, "'Do you really mean? Good Lord!' stammered the author, as soon as he could find his tongue. "'What I mean in detail will keep till a little later, and I need only say now that I should not have spoken in this way unless I were quite positive of being able to help you. Oh, there's no doubt as to that, believe me. In the first place, I'm very familiar with the workings of this extraordinary drug, this drug which has had the chance effect of opening you to the forces of another region. And in the second, I have a firm belief in the reality of supersensuous occurrences, as well as considerable knowledge of psychic processes acquired by long and painful experiment. The rest is, or should be, merely sympathetic treatment and practical application. The hashish has partially opened another word to you by increasing your rate of psychical vibration and thus rendering you abnormally sensitive. Ancient forces attached to this house have attacked you. For the moment I am only puzzled as to their precise nature. For were they of ordinary character, I should myself be psychic enough to feel them. Yet I am conscious of feeling nothing as yet. But now, please continue, Mr. Pender, and tell me the rest of your wonderful story. And when you have finished, I will talk about the means of cure." Pender shifted his chair a little closer to the friendly doctor, and then went on, in the same nervous voice, with his narrative. After making some notes of my impressions, I finally got upstairs again to bed. It was four o'clock in the morning. I laughed all the way up, 
at the grotesque banisters, the droll physiognomy of the staircase window, the burlesque grouping of the furniture, and the memory of that outrageous footstool in the room below. But nothing more happened to alarm or disturb me, and I woke late in the morning after a dreamless sleep, none the worse for my experiment except for a slight headache and a coldness of the extremities due to lowered circulation. Fear gone too? asked the doctor. I seem to have forgotten it, or at least described it, to mere nervousness. Its reality had gone, anyhow for the time, and all that day I wrote and wrote and wrote. My sense of laughter seemed wonderfully quickened, and my characters acted without effort, out of the heart of true humor. I was exceedingly pleased with this result of my experiment. But when the stenographer had taken her departure, and I came to read over the pages she had typed out, I recalled her sudden glances of surprise, and the odd way she looked up at me while I was dictating. I was amazed at what I read, and could hardly believe I had uttered it. And why? It was so distorted. The words indeed were mine so far as I could remember, but the meaning seemed strange. It frightened me. The sense was so altered, at the very places where my characters were intended to tickle the ribs. Only curious emotions of sinister amusement resulted. Dreadful innuendos had managed to creep into the phrases. There was laughter of a kind, but it was bizarre, horrible, distressing. And my attempt at analysis only increased my dismay. The story, as it read then, made me shudder for by virtue of these slight changes it had come somehow to hold the soul of horror, of horror disguised as merriment. The framework of humor was there, if you understand me, but the characters had turned sinister, and their laughter was evil. Can you show me this writing? The author shook his head. I destroyed it, he whispered. But in the end, though of course much perturbed about it, I persuaded myself that it was due to some after-effect of the drug a sort of reaction that gave a twist to my mind and made me read macabre interpretations into words and situations that did not properly hold them. And meanwhile, did the presence of this person leave you? No, that stayed more or less. When my mind was actively employed, I forgot it. But when idle, dreaming or doing nothing in particular, there she was beside me, influencing my mind horribly. In what way, precisely, interrupted the doctor? End of part one of the psychical invasion.